welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm happy to be talking today with Greg Carlton. Greg is a professor of literature and cultural studies at Tufts University. Greg focuses in particular on Russian literature and culture, and also on the place that war has occupied over time in Russian society and in shaping Russian national identity. Greg has a great book on these issues called Russia, A Story of War, that examines the way in which war has played an important role in shaping Russia's national identity over many centuries. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Greg. Oh, my pleasure. With the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, one of the narratives that was wrapped around that by Putin and other political elites within Russia and we could say political technologists or, you know, people who are kind of mouthpieces for the state in Russia, was this idea that the regime in Ukraine was embedded with Nazi operators. Now, that's, of course, something that's immediately harking back to the context of World War II. Russians actually call the Great Patriotic War, which is, I think, a slightly different concept to how we might think of the battles that were fought Mm -hmm. in World War II. Can you explain the place of this concept in Russian society? The Great Patriotic War, first of all, it's um, somewhat of a mistranslation into English. Really, the the word patriotic is not the word that's used in Russian. They have a different word for that. And actually what it is, it's the war for the fatherland. The point is, it's like the war for the state, the war for the country. And so it's the great war for Russia. But the key thing with the Great Patriotic War is that from a Russian perspective, it begins in 1941, i.e. with the Nazi invasion of Russia on June 22nd, 1941, and ends, of course, May 9th, that is, as opposed to May 8th in 1945. And that's a very key thing, because that means from the Russian perspective, the war starts with invasion, the war starts with Russia defending, the war starts with Russia as victim. But of course, by starting in 1941, one cuts out the fact that in 1939, Russia actually entered what would become World War II, as an aggressor invading Poland, allied to Nazi Germany. And just as a point of continuity, let's say, in Russian history, um, is World War II is not seen as a unique chapter of Russian history. In fact, it's the culmination of a series of foreign invasions. So the Fatherland War was when Napoleon invaded in 1812, of course, same situation, largest invading force the world has ever seen. Napoleon was painted by the Russian church officially as the Antichrist, so therefore the greatest evil. So in other words, World War II, therefore, is rather a recurring chapter in Russian history of foreign invasion. In each century, they can go back and claim another one. In the 18th century, it was the Swedes. In the 17th century, it was the Poles, etc., going all the way back to the Mongol invasion of the 13th century. What Putin is referring to, therefore, is World War II is not a unique chapter of Russian history. Rather, it's the ultimate chapter of an ongoing war, notice by singular, is so powerful in the Russian consciousness and is, is the centerpiece of a civic religion today with the Second World War from the Russian perspective, is when Russia is on top of the world. And it also propels Russia to become a superpower, of course, at the end. Putin did not originate this idea. Rather, it's been lurking in the Russian idea of where they are in history that Putin grasps onto. And that's very important when we talk about how he uses myth to justify the invasion of Ukraine, because he's not saying anything new. 
So the idea of Russia always being the victim of foreign invasion, in fact, goes back to the 19th century. That's how Russians identified themselves as being exceptional in the world, particularly following the invasion of Napoleon. And so therefore, World War II, again, just confirms that Russian exceptionalism, an exceptionalism that's actually born in war. Yeah, that makes me think about the place of war in a society and also the place of death. Like if death occurs at this widespread national scale, what are the ramifications of that in national memory? The figure of how many Soviet citizens, not just Russian, mm. includes Ukrainian, Georgian, you know, Lithuanian, Uzbek, Tajik, etc. The official number is about 27 million. Um, most of them were actually civilians, in fact, as opposed to combatants on the battlefield. But th- what that means is that one out of every six um, citizens of the Soviet Union died during the war or was killed, died what, what is euphemistically called an unnatural death, meaning that they died through circumstances of the war. It could be famine, it could be shot by the Germans, it could be whatever. And therefore, everybody in Russia, every family that I know, at least one person in their immediate family has paid that ultimate price. You know, you've got that that scythe of death that cuts through it. American culture, World War II is a past event. You know, we don't remember it as, as something living in the living present, whereas in Russia, it's quite the opposite. And the the key thing is that, therefore, it folds into getting back to where we were talking about earlier, this idea of that Russia is in a never-ending war. The point that Putin's using in um, February 2022 when he talks about denazifying Kiev and Ukraine is that the idea that World War II did not end in a bunker in 1945 with Hitler's suicide, that Nazism isn't specifically Hitler's fascism or anti-Semitism or anything like that. Rather, it's aggressive imperialism bent on global hegemony. In the 1990s, before the rise of China, when Russia was on its knees following the collapse of the Soviet Union, America took the reins of trying to rule the world from this perspective. Um, NATO is not seen as a conglomerate of equal military powers and some kind of alliance. Rather, it's seen as American-dominated, American-dictated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we have underneath them are countries that are merely puppets and things like that. I'm in no way justifying the invasion by saying NATO expansion mm-hmm. caused it. NATO expansion didn't cause um, Putin to become a, you know, a murderous autocrat. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at what we would call, let's say, the history of World War II, that Russia sort of comes in at a certain point where they actually became defenders, you know, in 1941, as you mentioned. And I'm very interested in the way in which nation states seem to prefer to conceptualise themselves as defensive, right, like of being attacked, of having to actually protect themselves. And then maybe Mm -hmm. that goes on to a myth around their military glory. In this long history, you know, Russia could have chosen in some ways, and like probably many other countries, could have chosen to focus on certain parts or on other parts. And we see this spotlight on the identity of threat and I would say I think victimhood I don't know if that's going too far the idea of being the defender being the victim is is a very powerful story it immediately brings sympathy from the outside onto you it immediately makes you the underdog even though you might have a larger army something like that the person who can overcome some obstacle I think that's interesting how there's almost a paradoxical thing going on in terms of, you know, probably many nation states wanting on the one hand to be powerful, to be, you know, some kind of regional or global power. But on the other hand, 
conceptualizing themselves also as the underdog, as on the defensive, as being at risk or at threat of attack. And that those two sort of have to be contained at the same time. One thing I've, I've come to think about, it, it maybe the more I study Russia, the more I study, you know, other, other cultures as well, including the United States, is it really comes down to stories. It's not history, it's stories. In other words, it's the stories one can tell about one's own country that are the most important things. Very few politicians have gotten elected talking about history. Rather, they, they tell stories. Now, the stories, of course, derive from history. The grammar of storytelling, your protagonist, your plot, things like that, is very similar. Whilst those ideas or those stories might be quite galvanizing at a general level for a population, how much is that actually going to maintain traction yeah. when we're yeah. seeing currently, I mean, from any reports, even, you know, the ones that are the most cautious or moderate about deaths of Russians currently in the war in Ukraine, they're large numbers, like it's in the thousands for sure. There might be those ideas and those stories, but once those soldiers are actually in that war dying, how long is that actually going to maintain traction with the population? You put your finger onto a very important part of Russian history, which Putin doesn't talk about, which is part of its modern history as well. And, you know, he can draw on chapters one, three, five, and seven, but there are also chapters two, four, six, and eight. And those chapters are when Russia engages in a war of choice that ends up in a quagmire or a defeat, mm. modern Russia, then there are catastrophic consequences at home. This would be the Crimean War in the middle of the 19th century, be the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, which led to the first Russian Revolution. It would, of course, be the First World War, which led to the collapse of the Russian Empire. And then, of course, it would be the invasion of Afghanistan, which was a war of choice, of course, which helped precipitate the breakup of the Soviet Union. If the invasion of Ukraine, Putin wants us to think this is just a continuation of World War II. However, the historian on the outside might say, well, wait a minute. What happens if this war of choice, which of course it is, falls into that latter category, the one I just described, Mm -hmm. where we've now hit a stalemate, we've now hit some kind of quagmire, and the appalling loss of life triggers something at home, which is what happened in the Crimean War, led to the abolition of serfdom, which has happened in the Russo-Japanese War. And it's what happened, for example, in the um, Soviet-Afghan War. And one of the key things that turned the public's head during the Soviet-Afghan war was the march of coffins back from Afghanistan was too much to ignore. Initially, that is in the first years of the war, they could kind of gloss over it. You know, no one's really killed, it's not really war, they're building schools, show propaganda films, that kind of type of stuff. But then once the march of coffins became more and more and more, it became very difficult to uphold that story. And so that will then, the fact of the government caught in its own lie becomes a huge point where the people will lose faith in their government. Because generally speaking, people, I think in history, will give their government the benefit of the doubt until something really precipitate some kind of crisis like that war Soviet in Afghanistan. Yes, I think that makes sense. And we see that in existing research that populations do tend to rally around their leaders, but the exception is when costs start to build up at home. So as domestic costs increase, military ventures become increasingly unpopular. And I guess a military getting bogged down in an intractable situation is pretty much 
never popular. How do you know you're in a quagmire? Again, I'd like to go back to stories. When you go to war, if it's a war of choice, your storyline better be pretty damn good because you weren't invaded. It was a war of choice, you mm. see. So you better have a damn good story. And if your story begins to change, then, then that's a good sign that something's not going right. And so the point is, is that Putin's story actually has changed quite a bit in the course of, which in historical sense is a very short time. I mean, the Afghan war took years for that story to kind of like get shaky until people began to doubt it. His story changed within weeks. In other words, from the invasion to denazify Kiev in February of 2022, excuse me, already by the end of March, he was, he was telling a different story. You know, this fortress Russia, this defensive thing, which is related, but it's a different kind of story. Um, and so he's already shuffling his deck of stories, which, of course, shows what a quagmire and what a stalemate it is, is he's reaching out to try and find one. So the, the key thing that, um, that will be then, I think, in today's situation is what is the public knowledge of this actual loss of life? The fact of these kinds of casualties occurring in such a short period of time at levels that, you know, some have said that some have speculated they've already passed the Afghan level. What is going on domestically? Do they have the idea? Do they know that this many, this many soldiers are losing their lives? Has it hit that precipitating, or has it crossed that threshold? And, and will it? Because the key thing that the Soviets tried to do during the Afghan war was they tried to hide the casualties. I mean, literally, they would not allow, for example, you to put the cause of when you're, you, if your if your son or and daughter um, died in Afghanistan, you could not put the cause of death on the headstone. And also, too, in ceremonies, you could not have uh, people who died in Afghanistan buried together, because what would happen, therefore, is all of a sudden, if you went to a, a Moscow cemetery, would be like, wait a minute, you know, in that corner of the cemetery, it's all fresh graves. What's going on here? So they they forced them to be scattered out, so you would never see such death. They never had um, funeral parades or anything like that. They never had the kind of ceremonial casket returning home type um, things that we get in America from soldiers killed in Afghanistan or Iraq or otherwise abroad. Um, none of that occurred. So, so the, 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 there were zero casualties, as it were, in the Afghan war until, of course, we had that. It was just the tipping point was reached. The thing is, is that they have just begun to acknowledge officially certain martyrs or heroes, it's the, their favorite word, so far, there is no general acknowledgement, publicly at least, of the casualty loss. So what we might be, if history is compressed now, is we might be halfway through the Afghan war, as it were, when the number of casualties coming home, it, it began to get into that shaky tipping point where the stories of why they're dying could not justify the numbers that were coming home. I, I think we're at this, this um, I don't want to say halfway point, we're nearing perhaps the tipping point. Mm -hmm. It might not be halfway through the war. Yeah, I guess it's a question of whether that feeling of unease builds in Russian society, even if those yeah. deaths are not all officially acknowledged, but people would know that they haven't had any contact with relatives for, let's say, a few months, and that could sort of build exactly, exactly. over time into a feeling of yeah discomfort. But the thing is, is while you and I and our little family might have that feeling of unease, can that connect to the family across the street? to the mm -hmm. one in another part of the city, to another city, et cetera. You know, what, what network is available for those feelings of unease? The reason, one of the reasons why this happened in the 1980s was because simultaneous, and partly because of the Afghan war, you had the breakdown of censorship and you had um, what we now call glossiness coming about. And so that actually accelerated 
that all of a sudden people were, were able to talk to each other as it were around the country. But that hasn't happened yet though in Russia. So, you know, that, that feeling of unease still is a very private one, of course. And so we're still in the midst of it. So, you know, anybody's guess is as good as mine. Yep, however it ends, it's ramifications for many decades to come. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Greg. Oh, Jessica, really it's my pleasure. Yeah. Sharing that insight into the historical context. Thanks for joining me today. No, well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Any anytime, anytime. I don't know, Jessica. It's kind of like you're gonna. It's just you know, I'm heartbroken that it happened. I did not believe it would happen. I didn't think it would happen. I thought it was all a bluff. And I'll be the first to admit that. I was like, what the hell are you doing? Because I think, you know, one person, Putin, in one day destroyed two countries, and, uh, Ukraine and Russia. Mm. Uh, he's destroyed any goodwill that had built up about Russia and things like that. And, and yeah, so I'm heartbroken. to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.